Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. It is Tuesday, June 6th, 2017. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. If Thaddeus and my math is correct, today is actually the 73rd anniversary of D-Day. Indeed. This good is morning, one, Deacon Mike. Good morning, Thaddeus. As always, it's great to be here. The second part of our show I'm really looking forward to, we're going to be talking to Eric Sammons about his book, The Old Evangelization. But before we get into that, I want to welcome all our listeners here at KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station and also our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM Lorena Waco. And we have added another station. Yes, we have. We have a station in Palestine now listening in on our programming here in the Red Sea family. And that is KINFLP 107.9 FM Palestine. So I want to welcome all the listeners there. And me not being a next native Texan, it's important that it's Palestine, not Palestine, because I, you know, I could be confused that we've got now a station over in the, the Holy Land. Exactly. Although maybe one of these days we will have, but, but at I'm the sure moment those we're thinking smaller. I'm sure those good holy people there at Sacred Heart Church who have who have helped to sponsor the radio station, I know that that's Holy Land down there. There you go. and uh, We're we blessed do, to be with them. Yes, and we, we do want to thank all the people that make these radio stations possible because without the assistance of the individuals listening to Catholic radio, there is no Catholic radio. Yeah, that's a great point, Deacon Mike, and I don't want to get too much into the uh, you know, pledge drive mode. We're not, we're not in a pledge drive, but it is important for our listeners, all, all of our listeners to know that when you, when you average out our monthly expenses over the year, we're in a, we're in a monthly deficit for our operating expenses. And so we have a need and we can really, really use more monthly sustaining donors, whether, whether at any level, make a big impact Whatever's big for you. Some people, $5 is going to be a big contribution. Other people, $500 is going to be a big contribution. But if we can have more monthly donors, that's going to give us more peace of mind, help us to budget and use our resources most effectively. So we really call on you to go to redcradio.org slash donate and jump on this great adventure that is Catholic Radio and, and, and spread the faith to your fellow uh, friends and neighbors, and strengthen your own faith in that of others. And also, if you have a business and you really, really like one of the programs that you hear on Catholic Radio, underwrite one of them. We will mention your for sure. uh, contribution. We will thank you for helping us out, and it'll get your name out there, but also you will be helping. Yeah. 
put on these shows and that our listeners, you really like. Excuse, I'm sorry to step on you. Our, and our listeners will know the kind of um, programming, the kind of values that you stand behind that you want to support and they they will appreciate that and yes but we do want to thank uh, say thank you to all those people that already help us out because without them we would not be on the air this is your station folks anyone who's listening this is your station you're you support it you make it possible through being at the benefit dinner through volunteering through putting those bumper stickers on your car word of mouth um telling people the great things that you hear on Catholic radio and and being a being a sign of witness being a sign of hope being a sign of the beauty of our catholic faith um it's this is your station you're a part of it and speaking of participation uh let me give you the phone numbers the numbers are 85 love red sea that's 855-683-7332 and if you have something going on at your parish that you would like to let people know about, give us a call. If you would like later on to ask questions of our guest or have something to contribute, feel free to give us a call. Again, the number is 85-LOVE-RED-C, 855-683-7332. Indeed. And now, Deacon Mike, you're speaking of parishes now you're like a saint anthony's guy so what what's going on at saint anthony's right now well right now we're in our usual summer lull which means for me things apparently seem to pick up when we have a summer lull i haven't mm, quite that figured that out counterintuitive yet. exactly well our say group would like to go to steubenville now what's say say is say saint why don't you anthony tell us about say? Youth. youth saint anthony so, youth okay saint anthony youth say uh they're planning a trip to Steubenville, and so, Excellent. of course, we don't want them to have to pay out of their own pocket if they don't absolutely have to, so they're having fundraisers for people to help them go. Good. Now, this is a neat coincidence because Steubenville, Ohio, Franciscan University, and our guest is an Ohio, an Ohio guy. Yes, so. although they're not going to Ohio, they're going to the one in a Steubenville meeting in Louisiana. Ah, I see. Okay. But it's still a connection. I spoke from ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the youth is having a uh, car wash on June 17th at Advanced Auto Parts from 9 till noon on Saturday morning. So go out there, get your car sparkling clean, and use it. make some con- uh, contribution, especially after this rain. I think everybody in town needs to have their car wash. <laughs> Poor, quick story. Poor gentleman on my cul-de-sac on Saturday. He spent all day washing, detailing his car by hand, then it downpoured. <laughs> Poor guy. I have had that happen before. I like hand washing my car. It's yeah, some way you should helpful. Uh, it calms me. Therapeutic, it's, it's they say. Very therapeutic. And so I've done this several times. You know, a nice sunny morning. I go out. Oh yes, it's cool. I'm going to wash the car. I'm done two hours later, yep. just enough rain to get water spots all over it. That's the good Lord's way of saying, don't get too attached to these material things. Exactly. A constant reminder, take no pride in what you have. Take pride in who you are, yes. a child of God. Exactly. One other fundraiser that um, the Say Youth will have is they're going to have a bake sale for Father's Day. They're going to be pre-selling items after all the masses this next weekend, and then you can pick them up for Father's Day. So if you haven't had a chance to consider baking something, just pick something up. 
I also wanted to mention that uh, the Austin Diocese is having their adult faith formation program in full gear this summer, and there will be one opportunity for catechists that are looking for their year two certification, and for anybody that wants to learn more about their faith, on Wednesday evenings in June, this is starting this Wednesday, we will start the uh, study on Scripture and the Old Testament. So, uh, where's this taking it's place? In the conference center at St. Anthony's, and it'll be from six to ten. Uh, it's a sixteen-hour course. We'll stretch it over four Wednesdays. Well, six to ten—that's intense. It, it is, but uh, we, we will take breaks. Good, 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 and uh, get to learn about uh, what the church teaches us, how we should look at Scripture, and what we are intended to get out of it, and what we're not intended to get out mm-hmm. of it. I always uh, laugh when I see things on the internet about Bible codes and all this thing, and mm. it always uh, makes me laugh because if there was a code in the Bible and all these people had interpreted it, how come all their predictions so far have been wrong? Right. right. Oh, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. I feel, like the- I'm the- <laughs> I feel like I'm here with Gene Wilhelm. <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to talk about this morning, uh, since we just celebrated the Feast of Pentecost, Mm. I came across an interesting uh, old homily, and I should have written down who wrote it. I was going to do that, and it slipped my mind. But the point the saint was making is that we talk so much about what happened at that first Pentecost, that Peter steps out on the balcony with the other 10 apostles, and they speak in tongues. They're speaking to every person there, and they understand them in the language that they grew up with. Mm -hmm. And the point the saint was making is we often ask, where are the people that speak in tongues today? And he said that the church still speaks in tongues. Yeah, The church speaks every language on the face of the planet. And we are called through confirmation to that same spirit that the apostles received at Pentecost. We are called to speak the language of the people that we come in contact with and spread the good news. So often we don't understand that confirmation is exactly the same spirit that the apostles received at Pentecost. So every time we celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, we should be reminded that that spirit is dwelling in us, mm-hmm. and we need to find the courage to step out on our balcony mm-hmm. to spread the faith to the people that we come in contact with. Yeah, and I think kind of going off of that, and I, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to puff myself up here, I'm, I'm just using this as an example uh, of what you're driving at, is that I don't, it's not every day and every moment that I'm stepping out there boldly and and proclaiming some, you know, truth of the faith or speaking truth to to someone who's who's maybe in a uh, irregular situation or or immoral situation. But there have been I know I can remember at least two times in my life where I've had those moments where I've done that and I I finish that moment, and I, and I say to myself, I don't know where that 
came from. I don't know how I had that courage and that confidence to speak it so speak it so clearly, speak it so appropriately for that moment, and and say what needs to be said. And so I I think that that's that's the that that's the Holy Spirit through the sacrament of confirmation at work that in those times when you need to do that you're equipped to do it and the, and the holy spirit uses you as the the voice of of Christ is that is that a fair interpretation or yes and scripture tells us this that you know it's when we are so worried with what are we going to say that we're going to go the wrong direction yeah it's when we trust that god will give us the words to say and we step out on that balcony right. or step up to that person and we say this is what I believe. Right. I realize you may not believe that, but let me explain why that is true. Right. And it does take courage. Mm-hmm. It does take trust that the words will come. Right. But all of us are given situations, and they don't, as you said, they don't come every day. They're not every moment of our lives, but when they do come, we need to recognize them, that we do have that Holy Spirit that the apostles had at Pentecost. And praying to be, praying regularly to be prepared for those moments, right? I mean, that's also kind of what you're talking about too, right, Deacon? Yes, very much so, that part of our prayer life needs to be that God gives us the courage, Mm -hmm. that God continues to strengthen us, gives us the perseverance for us to continue being the apostles, right. being those that are sent, and all of us are sent. Yeah. Every time we go to Mass, yep. we are sent, so we are apostles, mm-hmm. and we are intended to go and spread the good news. Indeed. Well, I think that this, this topic is a great segue, too, to the topic of Mr. Salmon's book, The Old Evangelization, How to Spread the Gospel Like Jesus Did. Is that that's the exact, correct? That is the correct uh, subtitle to mm-hmm. uh, the book, uh, The Old Evangelization, How to Spread the Faith Like Jesus Did. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Pentecost. Yep. Because in a way, you know, this just the feast day was a good segue into mm-hmm. talking about this book. How do we go about doing this? So why don't we take a short break And on the other side, we will talk to Eric Sammons about his book, The Old Evangelization. I think that's an excellent idea, Deacon. See you on the other side. Welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Mike Beauvais, and I would like to welcome our guest, Eric Sammons, the author of the book, The Old Evangelization. Welcome, Eric. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. And you are in Cincinnati, Ohio, your home base? That's correct. And would you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to write this book, your faith journey, what made you decide to do this? 
Well, I grew up as a uh, Protestant, evangelical Protestant, and I was very involved with evangelization efforts as a Protestant. And then in college, about 25 years ago, I converted to Catholicism, but I didn't, never really lost the desire to evangelize. So I just shifted it to Catholic evangelization. And what I realized, and I, so I've been doing that now for about 25 years at the individual level. I've uh, organized evangelization efforts at the parish level. And for five years, I was a director of evangelization for a diocese. And so I've seen a lot of evangelization efforts. And in that time, I've had some successes and I've had a lot of failures as well. And so what I did was this, this book is like an effort to see, okay, how did Jesus evangelize? How has the church always evangelized through the centuries? And write about that as the model for how we should go forth and evangelize now. That sort of brings me to the title of the book, because we hear so much about the new evangelization. But I think reading the book, what you're basically saying is that the new evangelization needs to look like the old evangelization. That's right. The new evangelization, of course, is on everybody's uh, lips in the, in the church over the past you know, number of years. And for good reason, because Pope John Paul II called the new evangelization because he saw we're in a new situation in the church in that traditionally evangelization always meant going out into the uh, foreign countries, going where people had never heard of Jesus, doing missionary work. However, today we're in a situation where evangelization involves literally the person sitting next to you in the pew, perhaps, because we have lots of baptized Catholics who have not been evangelized. So in that sense, it's very new. But what I've seen is that the term new evangelization has sometimes been co-opted to mean more of just marketing ideas of how we can market the Catholic Church. But when John Paul II called for the new evangelization, he wanted it to be based on the old evangelization. In other words, how Jesus evangelized and how the saints have evangelized throughout the centuries. So that's really kind of the, the meaning behind the title is let's not forget the foundations of how we've always evangelized when we do this new evangelization. One of the people that you mentioned in the book, and I found this fascinating, is uh, Mary Magdalene. She's referred to as the apostle to the apostles. But she's sort of an inadvertent evangelist because she is she thrust is. into this. Right. And, you know, she's a perfect model for most of us. You know, when we think evangelization, sometimes we want to think of like Bishop Barron or Scott Hahn or Billy Graham, and we're like, I can't do that. I'm not going to get up in front of hundreds or thousands of people and, and preach the gospel. I don't have the talent. I don't have the knowledge. That may be true, but it doesn't mean you're not called to evangelize. Look at, at Mary Magdalene. She was the, the woman whom seven demons were cast out. She was just a regular woman in a society that didn't really value the testimony, the witness of women. Yet it was her that Jesus picked to be the first witness of his resurrection. And not only the first witness, but he told her, go tell the apostles about my resurrection. So she became the first evangelist, so to speak, of the resurrection, because she was the apostle who went to the apostles and said, the Lord is risen. And if you think about it, there was no, I mean, the, the idea that he picked Mary Magdalene for this task is incredible, because in that time and place, the, the, the legal testimony of woman was worthless. You had to have men testify in order for your testimony to be considered accurate and, and, and valid. Yet he picked this woman who, so a lowly of society with no theological training, no, and really a, a, a sketchy background, 
to be the one who would testify and evangelize. And so if he can pick her to do that, there's no reason why he can't pick you or me or anybody to go out and tell people about him. But also the thing I thought about when I read this is she easily could have made excuses that one, again, you know, (laughs) women have no business being a witness and the other, you know, I have no training, you know, I'm, you know, my background, people are going to dismiss me outright. And this could very well have been a case, even with the apostles that, you know, they would have said, who, who are you to tell us these things? You know, we know better. And yet she went. That's right. And I think a lot of times we do this, we, we make the same excuses. And when I say we, I really mean we, because I fail in this often as well, where we, we have all these reasons why we can't evangelize. We can't really tell people about the faith. Hey, maybe they'll be turned off by it. Maybe they'll reject me. Maybe they'll think I'm a, a, a religious loon. I won't, it's not really the time to tell them right now. All these excuses we make in our head for why we don't share our faith with our friends, our neighbors, our family, when really I think it's the Holy Spirit's pushing us to say, no, really, you can be like Mary Magdalene and you need to do it even though you're afraid, even though you think it will fail, what the Lord really wants is your response, that you go out in faith, not worrying about the results, but just worrying about the fact that you're faithful to him in testifying to, to his resurrection, to the power he has in your life. Which brings us uh, to that famous quote from St. Mother Teresa, we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. Amen. Uh, you mentioned four Ps of evangelization. And would you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, I'd be happy to. That Basically, I'm trying to make it a easy way to remember what we have to do to evangelize. And I have the four Ps. The first P is practicing the faith. This is foundational to evangelization. If you are not, as they say, walking the walk, nobody's going to listen as you talk the talk. So you'll be ran a hypocrite. It doesn't mean that you're perfect because you're not going to be. I'm not, you're not, nobody is. What it means, though, is that you are striving for holiness, you're trying to live the faith. In fact, one of the greatest witnesses to the faith of living the faith is going to confession, in which you admit you didn't always do a great job of it, but that you're forgiven. So you practice the faith. That's the first P. The second P is prayer, another foundational aspect of evangelization. I always say that evangelization without prayer is just marketing. You might as well just go out and sell soda pop or something like that, because it really takes the Holy Spirit, like you were talking about before, the Holy Spirit is what turns it into evangelization, where now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, people can be converted. Because you're not going to convert anybody, the Holy Spirit will, so you need to pray. The third P, I think, is surprising to most people when I, when I bring it up, and that's penance. If you look at the writings of St. Paul, who really most people consider probably the greatest evangelist of the Church, he talks a lot about his sufferings, his sufferings he endured to preach the Gospel. And he ties it into that his sufferings are for the people he preaches the gospel to. It's for the church. He's suffering for them. And so we also have to be willing to take on penances, have to be willing to offer things up for the salvation of souls. It might be as simple as taking a cold shower in the morning or denying yourself that second cup of coffee or something like that. Or it might be more depending on your state of life and your physical abilities. But the idea is that you offer up these penances for the salvation of other souls. And then the fourth P is probably the one that most people think of when they think of evangelizing, that's preaching. And when I say preaching, I don't necessarily mean Billy Graham preaching. What I mean is simply that you are using words to testify to the power of God in your life. You're not just 
you, you are living the faith, but that's not it. You're then going beyond that and telling people, this is why I live the way I live, because Jesus has impacted my life. The, the sacramental lifestyle that I've lived has had an impact on me, and it can have that on you as well. So those are the four P's of evangelization. I found it interesting that three-quarters of those are focused on us working on ourselves, <laughs> and it's only the fourth one that's about then actually going out and engaging others. That's right. And in my experience, I have a lot of my own personal experiences in the book. In my experience, whenever I try to do the fourth one without the first three, I fail miserably. Whenever I go out there and I try to tell others about Jesus, but I'm not really practicing the faith fully, I'm not praying like I should, I'm not doing penances, then it's, what happens is it's my efforts and it's my human efforts. And frankly, that's doomed for failure. But when you do the first three, what you're doing is you're making it God's efforts in your life, and that's going to be much more effective. I saw the same sort of thing in uh, the diaconate formation program. The whole point of formation is changing the man in order that he can serve. And I think uh, when we're talking about evangelization, we're talking the same sort of thing. We need to be changed so that God can use us. Absolutely. And I think there's somewhat of a balance here because what I find is some people, they're, they're, they're thinking, I can't evangelize yet because I'm not really a good enough Catholic. I think that's the other extreme we want to avoid. If you're living the faith on some level and you're trying, then you, are, you can be a good evangelist. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect and you have to have full knowledge of the catechism. What you need to be able to do is just simply tell people about how Jesus has impacted your life and how he's continuing to impact it. Maybe you're not there yet. I mean, we're, none of us are there yet, to be honest. But uh, God understands, and people understand, they, they, they take that as a more credible witness if you say, listen, I've screwed up a lot in my life. I've done things I, I wish I hadn't done, but the Lord is working on me and bringing me closer to him. I think that can be a very effective witness as well. One of the other excuses people usually uh, find is the thought that, you know, I need to go out to evangelize. And you use the example of St. Philip Neri to show that, no, sometimes we just need to stay home. That's right. We do have this idea that evangelization is out there. St. Philip Neri is known as the Apostle of Rome because he never, once he moved to Rome early in life, he never left Rome, and he evangelized in his circle of influence. I, I've kind of define the old evangelization as one-on-one -on -one personal encounters which challenge people to conversion. The first part of that is important, The one, both parts are, but the one-on-one -on -one personal encounters. Evangelization at its core isn't as much about preaching to thousands of people as it is those one-on-one -on -one encounters we have with people that we really enter into their lives, they enter into ours, and we have a great impact on them. Every single person has a circle of influence. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. You run into people every day. You talk to people. You interact with them. You will do one of two things with all those people each day. You will either bring them closer to Jesus in the Catholic Church, or you'll bring them further away from Jesus in the Catholic Church. So evangelization really is every day saying, I'm going to bring everybody around me closer to Jesus in the Catholic Church today. It might not always every day be explicitly by telling them, but by your life and by everything you're praying for them, everything you do, you can bring them closer each day. One of the other things that you mentioned in your book that I found very, very appropriate is you used the example of St. Teresa of Lisieux to show that 
prayer is not only part of evangelization as a a preparatory means, but also prayer can be a means of evangelization. Absolutely. And you see this in the history of church, but uh, the little flower, St. Therese, there's a beautiful story about she knew a, a man was about to be executed, and he was unrepentant, and he was willing to die without confessing his sins to a priest. And so she was very young at this time, and she decided she was going to pray fervently. I think she was like 14 or something like that, and she was going to pray fervently for this soul. She had no encounter with him, no meeting with him, but she prayed for him. And sure enough, through her prayers, before he died, he did, he did uh, convert and, and make a confession and you know, was reconciled to God. And so never underestimate the power of prayer. It's unbelievable, literally unbelievable at times what it can do. And so we're evangelizing with our prayers as well as by our actions and by our words. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what I think is going to be the topic that's going to be most challenging for people when they read your book. And you mentioned that evangelization is not just being welcoming. And this is, you know, we hear so much about this, you know, you have to be welcoming. You have to be welcoming. And this seems to become the sole focus of evangelization in a lot of parishes. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, and I, that's what I've seen too. And I feel like it's an imbalance. I, I, earlier I defined old evangelization as one-on-one personal encounters which challenge people to conversion. I feel like sometimes the overemphasis on welcoming, we forget that second part of the definition, challenging people to conversion. There will be times and places where we need to make other people feel uncomfortable. Because if you're always comfortable, you won't change your lifestyle. And all of us are called to a radical change of lifestyle. And so if we're not sometimes making them feel uncomfortable, and by that I mean perhaps challenging them in, in their lifestyle. Perhaps they're living an immoral lifestyle. Maybe they're living with uh, somebody they're not married to or something like that. We challenge them at times and, and we, to conversion to say that's not the way God is calling you to live. That's not the highest way, the most perfect way to live. And that will appear unwelcoming because Jesus appeared unwelcoming often. It doesn't mean we're trying to be jerks. We're not trying to go out and make everybody you know, feel bad or anything like that. But we are at times called to challenge people. So welcoming, I see, is one step in the process of, process of evangelization. Obviously, you have a newcomer to your parish. You want them to feel welcome. I'm not saying you don't want to make them feel welcome. But you don't go to that so far that if you have somebody who's been at your parish or somebody you're friends with and you've known for a long time, and they're living a lifestyle that's outside the gospel, You don't just always want to make them feel welcome. Frankly, you want to make them sometimes feel a little unwelcome in the sense that they feel like, hey, I need to change something in order to be fully in God's love and in his commandments. Because as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so if somebody's not keeping the commandments, we might need to challenge them and say, do you really love the Lord? And of course, we challenge ourselves the same way. But in these ways, we will appear unwelcoming at times. So often we forget that the word for repentance that's used in the Greek is metanoia, which basically means turn around and go in the opposite direction. <laughs> and, you know, everybody thinks we're on the right path because we're not Adolf Hitler or we're not, you know, as right. bad as the next guy. And that's not what repentance means. Repentance means I need to change my life. Whatever point I am, I can do better. And what I hear you saying is what we need to do is challenge each other 
to accept that we're not perfect. And if someone points out there's things that we can do to improve, we're not intending to be unwelcoming. We're intending to preach the gospel. Absolutely. And you see Jesus do this. He calls people to that metanoia, that repentance, because we do need to—each one of us need to change our lives. We can't just—when we make welcoming the end-all, be-all, what we end up doing is we're welcoming sin. And Jesus never did that, and the great saints have never done that. We have to call people to this conversion. I, I, I think the most important thing in evangelization, the most important thing as Catholics we lead people to is confession— and the sacrament of confession. And of course, in the sacrament of confession, when you walk in there, you're stating to the world and to, to the Lord, I haven't lived the way I should live, and I need to change. That's a great, that, it's a, a great uh, mercy that you know that, but it's also very difficult. And so when you challenge other people that, hey, you need to go to confession, implicitly you're saying, hey, you're a sinner. <laughs> you may not say it outright, but that's really what you're implying when you tell them they need to go, go to confession. But of course, they need to see you in the confession line as well, because you're admitting that you also are a sinner. And I think this is the beauty of the Catholic Church, is when I see images of Pope Francis or St. John Paul the Great kneeling in a confessional, it's a reminder that we are so far sometimes from recognizing where our failings lie because the culture constantly tells us, you know, that's okay. And so I think the balance we need to find is that, yes, we're not horrible people, but we are far from saints. That's right. And I think one of the common things you hear today, especially among young people, is that don't judge me. If you say anything against somebody else in their lifestyle, they immediately say, don't judge me, that really no lifestyle is wrong or, or any, and, and you can live any lifestyle you want. But that's a lie because the, the fact of the matter is, is that our Lord has set out the lifestyle he wants each of us to live, not because he's some uh, curmudgeon who's just telling everybody to, hey, to follow my rules, but because he knows that will bring about the, the deepest joy, the most happiness, and of course eternal life and happiness with him. And so if we really believe that, if we really believe this being Catholic thing is the best way to live, well, then we need to challenge people to consider it and to live it themselves, because otherwise we're really selling them short. If we're saying, hey, the way you're living is really not that bad, it's okay that you're, maybe you're living with somebody who's not your wife, for example, then what we're saying is that that lower, that, 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 that lifestyle outside of God's grace, outside of God's commandments, is somehow okay for them. But it's not. We need to believe, that, no, you really will be more happy, more joyful if you follow God's commandments. And I think that's a real challenge in today's culture, because people don't want to hear that, and we don't want to be, appear as judgmental people, and that's what, that fear keeps, us, keeps our mouth shut. And I think that's one of the big challenges of living in the age we live in, because if you do speak the truth, it is not welcomed, and uh, you will get you know, accused of being judgmental, of being intolerant of all these great sins of our secular world, and that is not the intent. The intent is to speak the truth. That's right, and I think people— it's like what we're going back for is we're talking about being faithful, not successful. I've seen a lot of times where people, I think, hesitate to evangelize. They hesitate to do what they know is right 
because they fear being seen as judgmental, being seen as somebody who is an extremist or something like that. And so they keep their mouths shut. And I think that's a real danger that we have because it's really not a very loving thing to do. The most loving thing to do always for somebody is to call them to the best way to live. And so if we are loving somebody, if somebody, a good friend, for example, is an alcoholic, we don't just say, I'm not going to judge you. It's okay that you're an alcoholic. That's just the way you live. That's true for you or something like that. That's not very loving, is it? What's loving is to help them to find recovery. And it's the same thing if they're living in other ways, in an immoral way. The most loving thing to do is to call them out of that. Now, they may not change because we don't have that. Uh, you know, They have free will, and it's the Holy Spirit working in their life. So they may not change. What we have to do is just be faithful to the call to present the truth to them and then pray that the Holy Spirit will work in them and that they will be open to hearing that truth. I like the example you used in your book of Jesus failing in the case of the young rich man. It's one of my favorite stories is the uh, rich young man. And as an evangelist, it's, it's kind of amazing because here's this young man. He comes to Jesus and says, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this is like the softball question of all softball questions. For an evangelist, this is what you want. Somebody coming to you and asking you, how is it that I can be saved? It's, it's like that's when you can hit out of the park. And so Jesus tells him, which I think this is an important point too. He, first thing he says is, you know, follow the commandments. That reminds us of the foundational value of the moral life. It's not everything about being a disciple, but it's the foundation of it. But then, of course, the rich man yeah, says, yes, I've done that. And then Jesus says to him, sell all you had, give it to the poor, and come follow me. He's calling him to a complete and total conversion. Like I was saying, he challenges somebody to conversion, and the young man walks away. And so from the outside, this looks like Jesus fails. Yet we know Jesus is the perfect God-man, and he really can't fail. And what, what's happening here is he didn't fail. Jesus, he proclaimed the gospel clearly and charitably. That's success in evangelization. If you present and proclaim the gospel charitably and clearly, you have had success. The results will either come or they won't based upon, like I said, the free will of the people you're talking to and the Holy Spirit. You can't control that. And so in this case, when we see Jesus fail, so to speak, it reminds us, don't judge all of your evangelization efforts on the results. Judge them on, did you clearly and charitably proclaim the gospel? If you did that, you can sleep easy that you've been faithful. And we don't know. Maybe the rich young man 10 years later finally did become a disciple of Christ. That's the other thing is you don't know how it impacts other people and in what time frame. So you can't look at it as a failure either if the person walks away initially because it might have planted that seed that later comes to fruition. And I think that's a valuable point to keep in mind because when I've worked in RCIA for a number of years and we have people coming into the church in their 70s, in their 80s, and you know something somewhere earlier in their life triggered that. And the same thing when I hear some of the conversion story of people that are you know evangelists on the radio, the same sort of thing. You never know at what point the conversion takes place. And when right. we evangelize, we don't know what success comes. We can't be focused on immediate success. Right. And I've, I, I read a, a study one time that they showed people who change religions, I mean, they can Protestant to Catholic or nothing to Protestant or whatever, 
there's usually 150 on average, 150 points of contact they have before their conversion. What I mean by that is like, for example, my own case, I went from evangelical to Catholic. I had on average 150 different points of contact with the Catholic Church before I finally converted. In other words, I might have maybe I went to a Catholic funeral or I, I saw a priest on an airplane and talked to him or I, you know, somebody told me I, somebody was a witness of Catholicism here or there. Somebody said this. Well, none of those people before the last one have any idea the impact they made on me. And so whenever we're talking to somebody evangelizing, we don't know. We might be that third point of contact out of 150 that eventually leads to the person's conversion. It's very rare we'll be the 150th, so to speak. We'll usually be one of the ones before that that just simply nudges somebody closer to the Catholic Church. And so that's another reason why we can't judge our success as evangelists by outward results. We don't know if something we said today might have an impact on somebody 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Exactly. One of the comments you talked about in the book is the heresy of low expectations. What did you mean by that? What I mean by that is this, that I have seen a lot of times people will be living a lifestyle outside the gospel. And those around that person basically are just resigned that that's the best that they can do. You know, for example, I have a friend who has uh, lived a homosexual lifestyle, and he has begun to live monogamously with his partner. And I know a number of other friends who are like, well, that's good. He's not sleeping around. He's not, you know, having all these different encounters, whatever. And like, that's the best he can do. And I would say that's a heresy of low expectations because I believe that God wants everybody and has the ability to have everybody live fully for him and live completely in his commandments and completely live the way he wants them to live. And so we shouldn't give up on somebody because they've lived a certain way for maybe 30 years, and we just say, well, that's, you know, he's never going to get any better than that. That's the best he can do. We should just accept that. No, every single person is called to that high ideal of completely following Christ, being like what the rich young man was called to, of giving everything to Jesus. Everybody's called to that. Now, the great thing about our faith is also, though, that when we fail to live up to that, there's that great mercy, that, that Jesus will reach down and pick the person up and lift them up. So even though we're calling everybody to this high ideal, and we should never, we should never lower that ideal, we also recognize that when people don't live up to the ideal, including ourselves, God is very merciful, and he picks us back up to start again. I think that this is the beauty of our Catholic faith, the both and. It's always that we have high expectations and we ex- accept you with all the warts. Right. And, but I, I think our culture just, we want to ignore the warts and just praise everyone for everything. And that is dishonesty. But we run into that uh, when we're talking about uh, the priesthood, for instance. The church still insists on celibate priesthood. And the secular culture cannot grasp that this is actually an achievable goal for our priesthood. Right. And we, we want to turn the warts into virtues, is what we're trying to do in our culture. And instead of saying, no, they really are warts, they really are things that we shouldn't do, we try to turn them into something uh, that we say is virtuous and valuable, and it's not. And it's the same thing, like, like you mentioned, with the priesthood, the celibate priesthood. 
we pretend that, oh, it's just not possible just because it's hard. Nobody said it was easy. It is hard to be a celibate man in this world and to live celibacy. But the fact is, is God would never ask us to do anything that was impossible. It may be humanly impossible to do some of the things God calls us to do. And it probably is humanly impossible for many uh, men to do something like that. But it's never impossible for him, for God. And so therefore he gives the grace to make it possible for any priest who's called to that to live that celibate lifestyle. And the sad thing for me is... uh... There are so many Christian households with signs on the wall that read all things are possible with God, and then we live our lives insisting that it's not. Right. One of the other things that uh, you talk about in the book is that our culture basically indicates that hell is empty, that no one will ever go to hell because God is infinitely merciful. Is this supported by Scripture? Absolutely not. It's not supported by Scripture. It's not supported by the Catechism, by the teachings of the Church, or any of the great saints. We've seen a great decline in the number of Catholics over the past generation. There's just no way to get around that fact. Many, many, many millions of people have left the Catholic Church. At the same time, we've also seen an increase in people inside and outside the Church saying, basically, everybody's going to heaven. Unless you're Hitler or Stalin, you're going to get into heaven. I don't think those two facts are unrelated. Because the fact is that the greatest selling point, for lack of a better term, of being Catholic is eternity with God in heaven. If you can have that without any change of lifestyle here, well, why not? Just why bother changing your lifestyle? People don't see the value in it. And the fact is that if you look at the great evangelists over the centuries, one of the things, one of the key crux of preaching the gospel is telling people, yes, you are in danger of hell. It's a very blunt truth. It's a very difficult one to hear today, but it's true nonetheless that if you do live outside of God's commandments and you reject him in your lifestyle, then there's a decent chance when you die, you'll reject him for eternity and you'll be without him for eternity. And so when we're proclaiming the gospel, we need to have that as part of our proclamation that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And so we need to be very clear about that and say it's through the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is the instrument Jesus Christ left us to be united to him on earth and then for eternity in in heaven. And if we lose that as part of our message, people will be like, well, what's the point then? Why bother? I'm just going to go ahead and live the way I want to live here because it doesn't matter after I die. And that's not what Jesus said. You make the point that when Jesus speaks the truth— One, he doesn't water it down, and two, he doesn't then correct himself when he sees people walking away. Yeah, the thing is, is we have to make it very clear what's at stake here, that eternity is at stake for each person. Everybody's going to live eternally, no matter what. (laughs) It's just where are you going to live eternally? And we need that change of lifestyle, and we also need to recognize, again, and I, I, I don't mind repeating it, that idea that when we fall, Jesus is right there to pick us up. It's not a matter of, okay, if we don't live perfectly, then we're going to go to hell. What it is a matter of if we're faithful to him and we love him, if we love him, that when we do fall, we'll go back to him, go back to Jesus. And that's really what he's looking for more than anything else. I think it's uh, this 
denial in our culture. It's like being in a well. Somebody throws you a rope and you say, well, I'm not in the well. And, well, they can't pull you up if you're not in the well. Right. But uh, it, it, yeah, it's like somebody's in quicksand and you reach your hand out to them and they just say, I'm doing OK. And yes. Thinking and thinking and thinking. Well, that's because all my friends are there, too. And I'm, I'm happy here. Right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, one of the other things you talk about is this spirituality but not religious thing that's in our culture. A lot of people today like to content themselves saying, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't need religion. And really what they're saying is, is I've designed my own religion for myself. They're still religious. Every single person is religious, and some, even an atheist is religious, meaning they have a set of beliefs that they follow and a certain way that they worship, whether it's themselves or some other god or whatever, nature, whatever the case may be. Really, everybody is religious. And so as Catholics, what we're saying is, is we are members of the divinely revealed religion. Yeah, everybody's religious. Everybody has a religion they follow. But we are following the religion that comes from God himself. And so it's not just a case of just only being spiritual, meaning – and I think really that's a cop-out when you say that. When you say you're spiritual but not religious, what you're saying is I acknowledge that there might be things beyond this world that are important, so that's good, but I'm not going to change the way I live for it. And really that's what religion, a, a divinely re revealed religion is going to say to you. It's going to say, okay, these things are true, and you have to change the way you live to be in conformity with those e eternal truths. I think that's the real – that's where people don't like it because it means they have to change their lifestyle. And so they say, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Well, basically what we end up with is individual religions. Everyone's religion is whatever they have decided it is. And everyone's spirituality is pointed towards the self. It is self-gratification. Whatever makes me happy. Yeah, it really is. It is a matter of selfishness. And of course, our Lord said the opposite. It's when we die to ourselves that we really find life. That's the, that's the paradox of the Catholic faith. That's the beauty of it, that if we die to ourselves, we'll find contentment and joy. When we live for ourselves, we won't find happiness. We won't find that contentment. And that's the real paradox that I think the world rejects completely. But when we live the faith, we know that's true. That, and I know in my own life that's true. When I have lived for myself, I've been the most miserable. And when I've tried to live for others, that's when I've been the most happy. And I think that takes us right back to the beginning of our conversation, that the new evangelization needs to look like the old evangelization <laughs> that holds to all these truths, that continues to express this is what the church teaches and we don't have the option to ignore it because we don't like it. It's really, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe what the Church teaches? Do we really believe it's been handed on from Jesus Christ himself? If we do, why would we ever sell it short? Why would we ever try to uh, make it more palatable in the sense of kind of cutting off the more controversial things? If we truly believe it comes from Jesus Christ himself— then we shouldn't be ashamed or afraid to proclaim it in its totality and to challenge people to conversion because they're not converting to us. They're not converting to our made-up man-made religion. What they're converting to is Jesus Christ. And we know from experience, hopefully we know, <laughs> that that is the true way to live. That's where we're going to find peace and contentment. 
And I think that is uh, so important that, in a way, every time we water down the truth, what we're saying is that we don't believe that God can do all things, that he can't work with those people that are struggling with their faith. And so we'll have to water this down instead of saying that we trust that Jesus will give them the strength to live out that truth, and we all we have to do is proclaim it. That, that's exactly—I mean, that's beautifully stated right there. I mean, really, that's it right there, is do we really—if we really believe this, we don't need to water it down, because usually when we water it down, we're trying to make it more palatable for something, and in doing so, we're actually making it less attractive. We've seen that with a lot of the mainline Protestant denominations over the past generation, that they've watered down their teachings so much, and they've lost tons of members. And that's the, the, the trick is, so to speak, that when you water down your teachings in order to attract people, you actually make it less attractive, because it's not in conformity with the designs of the human heart. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about Catholicism is it actually is in conformity with the way God made us to be. And so that down deep is what's going to be more attractive. Sure, we might reject it on the surface for a while. We might say, no, I, I'm going to live my way. I don't want to live the way God wants me to live because I'm going to be more happy living my way. But we're denying who we really are. And so what we really need to do is recognize the fullness of the faith is the most attractive thing out there. That's what's going to attract people to say, hey, I'm going to give up my life for this. Nobody's going to give up their life for a man-made religion or a watered-down religion. But they, are, they will give up their life for the fullness of the faith. And I think that's what I heard you saying in the book is that whole notion that it can't be the truth if you're changing it all the time. It has to <laughs> right, be exactly. the truth that you're preaching. Well, we're it's nearing your words. Yes, we're nearing the end of our uh, conversation, and I really want to thank you for being on. Uh, like I said, I encourage everyone to read your book. I really found it fascinating and so honest. The fact that you know all of us are called to evangelize, but we need to see how Jesus evangelized. And we need to learn to trust God that if we speak the truth, people will hear it. That's right. We, if we are praying and we have faith in God, we can trust that if, as long as we proclaim the fullness of the faith, people respond in the way that God wants them to respond. We just need to be faithful to that call to proclaim the gospel. As long as we do that, we'll be in good shape. And, and we'll see a result eventually. That's not why we do it but results will happen over time. Again, thank you very much. This concludes our program. Thank everybody for tuning in. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host for the Red Sea Roundup with guests Daryl and Nor Lori Nagel talking about a life of service in youth ministry. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when calculating the many ways you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up.